Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of my podcast, Grit Stories of Resilience. I am changing the order of some of my episodes just now, this week and perhaps next week, to follow up on this last one with Ann Drescher, who is the third-year doctoral student at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, in which she talked, I thought, rather eloquently about the challenges that young people have in going to college that first year and meeting new people and getting involved and building new friendships and relationships, but also the stress of being away from home, perhaps for the first time. Some kids may be looking forward to that and think there's nothing finer than to be away from home. But, you know, others may think that, but that's not the way it, you know, always turns out, at least in the first few weeks. And there's always an adjustment period. You're moving into a dorm, new roommates, new suite mates, new lunch and dinner mates, new classes that perhaps are tougher than you had even in high school, no matter where you went to high school. And all that's a challenge. And they want to do so well. And they're trying so hard to be their best. And so it hit me that, you know, it's, it's so difficult sometimes for people to start and do new things for the first time. I was listening to another podcast by an excellent person, Mel Robbins, on the way back from out of town in the mountains this past weekend. And she was talking about how when people start out with doing something they have never done before, it's not that they don't have any experience so much as they are simply beginning. They are beginners. So no matter what you have done in your life up to this point, if you do something different, you are a beginner. Well, when I joined the attorney general's office a long, long time ago, I was just turned 25 years old. And a friend of my family, who was a member of the Supreme Court at that time, Dr. Beverly Lake, the father of I. Beverly Lake Jr., who became the chief justice of the Supreme Court not that long ago, told me that I needed to write a letter of resignation and give it to someone else and leave the attorney general's office after two years because that would be enough to get what I needed to get out of that experience of working for the state as a lawyer. I, of course, did not follow that advice and stayed there probably way too long. I stayed there almost eight years, four times as long as he thought I should. During that time, I had numbers of different jobs, mostly in-house, advising state agencies, the head of the Consumer Protection Division of North Carolina at that time. And from time to time, I would argue appeals for the state, as everyone did, in the Court of Appeals of the North Carolina Supreme Court, and sometimes on constitutional issues in, in federal district courts before three federal district court judges. Those were challenges, but they were controlled challenges. You had a group of people around you. You wrote briefs. You knew what you were talking about, or you hoped that you knew what you were talking about by the time you got started. 
So that wasn't too tough. The last year, though, I was there, I I joined a section called the Special Prosecutions Section. It was new. It was designed to go in all of the 100 counties in North Carolina, if they needed us, to give legal advice to district attorneys or to prosecute cases for district attorneys who had conflicts or for some reason didn't want to try or prosecute certain cases. The real truth of the matter is they called us when they had a loser case or they didn't want to do it and they want to pawn it off on somebody else to take the rap. And that's where we came in. We were in a big white house on Blunt Street. Oh, about two blocks from the governor's mansion. An old, old wooden home. And one morning I was in my office on the second floor and my boss, whose name was Lester Chalmers, he had been the district attorney of Wake County back in the 1960s. Called me to his office and he said, Jimmy, we've got a case I want you to try. I said, okay, where is it? Well, it's in Newton, North Carolina. And I said, uh, Lester, I don't know where Newton is. He said, well, it's on the way to the mountains. It's near Hickory. As a matter of fact, it's the county seat of Catawba County. I want you to try this case as a jury trial. It'll be good for you. You need to do it. I said, what kind of case is it? Well, it's a pharmacist, a local pharmacist up there has been accused of misappropriating or misapplying prescription drugs. Lester, I do not want to do this. He said, why not? Lester, I've never tried a case. I don't want to start now. I've been a lawyer for eight years. I've gotten along fine. The last thing I want to be is a trial lawyer. I don't know how to try cases. I don't want to be in front of juries. I'm scared to death of it. Don't make me go do this. Jimmy, you're going to go. And no one's going to know or care whether you win or lose. It's not going to hit the papers. And I'm going to send Mike Carpenter with you. He had just, Mike Carpenter was a young lawyer, just joined the AG office. I said, well, Mike's never tried a case either. Well, I don't care. You're going to go. And it's a week from Sunday. Okay. Here's the case. Go call the witnesses. Talk to them. Interview them. Get your case together. Get in the car, you and Mike, and ride up to Newton. Stay the week. Have a good time. Go out to dinner. Try this case. And try to win, Jim, if you can. So I got on the telephone. I called all these witnesses. I made copious notes, you know. Thought I was ready. Mike and I packed, got in the car, and drove a state car to Newton. Stayed just outside in the local hotel. On Monday morning, we go to the courthouse. Newton's a small town. The courthouse took up the entire downtown city block with lots of statues and cannons of Confederate soldiers and the such. We parked across the street diagonally for free all day long. I want to tell you something. If you are a lawyer trying a case from a place outside of a small town, though I love small towns, but you go there and you can park diagonally across the street for free, you are going to lose because you're out of town 
and you're going to get home cooking. So he walked up these steps, just one courtroom, two floors. The last thing I remember Mike saying to me is, Jim, just act like you know what you're doing. Mm. There are a lot of people there, people bustling around. It was Monday, so a lot of potential jurors were there, deputy sheriffs were there. The place was going, I thought, somewhat crazy. And I saw a deputy sheriff, and since he was a sheriff, he'd be on our side, you know, with the DA. So I walked up to him and introduced myself and asked uh, if he might help us with the jury selection later that morning because he might know some of the people in the community. He said, no, I can't do that. I said, why not? Well, because I like the defendant, the pharmacist. He's my pharmacist. I'm on his side. Oh, okay. Maybe somebody else will help us. He said, I don't think so. You're from out of town, aren't you? I said, well, yeah. Uh, that's what I thought. I said, by the way, do you know what table we're supposed to sit at in the courtroom? He looked at me and started laughing. He said, you're new to this, aren't you? I said, yes. This is my first one. Oh, my God. He said, well, you sit at the table next to the jury box. That's where the DA always sits, next to the jury box. So we go in. Case is called for trial. The lawyer on the other side was a young lawyer, not a young lawyer, a short person, wavy, dark gray hair named Alan Bailey. He was from Charlotte. He was an evangelical Baptist, great trial lawyer, great trial lawyer, had a terrific reputation. He took pity on me because he had graduated from Wake Forest, and he knew that I had also, not in law school, but in college. So he was sort of nice to me at the beginning. We started to select the jury. We got through that okay. And then we started putting on our evidence. I called my first witness to the stand, asked him some questions, who he was, where he lived, how he was educated, what kind of job he had, what were his job qualifications, and then started in about the 10th or 12th question into the meat of my direct evidence. I had the questions all written out, so I was pretty at peace with myself. And about the third or fourth question, he, he gave an answer that was somewhat different from what he had told me on the phone, and it was different from what I anticipated he would say. So I was sort of stumped, but I went on with my next question, which did not follow the previous question in his answer. After about five minutes, it was a mess. His answers and my questions did not go together. So the judge stopped the trial, just stopped the trial and called my co-counsel, Mike Carpenter, to the bench. He knew Mike. He knew Mike because Mike was a political friend of Rufus Edmiston, who at that time was the Attorney General, and he knew Rufus. He said, you know, Mike, Jim does not seem to know what he's doing. And Mike threw me under the bus saying, Judge, he doesn't. Can you help us? And the judge said, yes, just tell him to ask the questions this way. What happened next? So I went back and did that. You know, it went a lot better. 
took the entire week to try this case. And on Friday morning, the jury went out. They came back after a couple hours and convicted the defendant, but only of a misdemeanor, not a felony, just a misdemeanor. And the uh, judge gave him a probationary sentence and a $100 fine. That wasn't much for a week's worth of work, taking up a whole courtroom. However, this is before the internet, cell phones, things like that. So by the time Mike and I were halfway back to Raleigh that day, we wouldn't go to the office, you know, until Monday morning. We had convinced ourselves that we had won a great victory. And we got back and we told everybody what a slam damn thank you ma'am case we had tried and we were the best trial lawyers in North Carolina. People laughed at us, but they were quietly relieved, not happy, but relieved that we had not embarrassed ourselves. None more so than my friend Lester. That's my first case that I tried in front of a jury. I remember it as though it was right now. Everybody, every trial lawyer has a first case. Everyone, there's not a single trial lawyer in the world who has not had a first case. 90% of them have had situations or experiences not that much unlike what I have just described to you, where they did not know necessarily what they were doing. There's this great line from Robert Frost that fits perfectly. The shortest way out is almost always through. The shortest way out is almost always through. So the through way for me was to get up and try this case. And we did. The political landscape during this time that President Carter had been elected president in 1976. Robert Morgan, who was my mentor and he had given me my first job in the Attorney General's office, was the uh, United States Senator having been elected in 1974. And so in 1977, we talked one day by telephone and he asked me if I'd like to be an assistant United States attorney. And I said, yes. How much does it pay, Robert? He said, well, it makes, pays $32,000. I said, oh, my God, that's more than I make now. Yes. He said, okay. And so he called George Anderson, whom he had been to law school with, who was the U.S. attorney-to-be, and they agreed and offered me this job. One or two days before George is sworn in as United States Attorney, he calls me on the telephone and asks two questions. One is, will I get the application uh, to fill out to be a U.S. Assistant U.S. Attorney sitting so to an FBI background check? And believe it or not, in my life, I passed two FBI background checks. This was the first of two. And the, the second question he asked me was, he said, Jim, we've got a case that's presently in the United States Supreme Court. We think it's going to come back for trial, but we don't know when, but we believe it is because they took it on a discretionary basis. They wanted to say something. 
I said, what is it? He said, it's that murder case from Fort Bragg. You know, Jeffrey McDonald. I want you to be the lead prosecutor. You want me to be the lead prosecutor? Yes. He said, Jim, you're a Democrat, and I'm a Democrat. The office is full of Republicans, and I trust you. So will you do this? Yes. And by the way, you're going to be the chief of the criminal section. Can you do that too? I said, yes, I can. I said yes to everything. Didn't hesitate. Did not hesitate. Said yes. When we put the phone down, I walked outside where I was. I said, oh, my God, how am I going to do any of this? But I was willing to try. I wanted the chance to try. And so I did. I got ready over the next year and a half to try this case. A lot of people didn't think I was qualified to do that. I'm very sympathetic to people who are new, who are young. I was young then, somewhat inexperienced, doing things for the first time. It's tough. It's tough. But you got to try. You got to go for it. My mantra was not that I wanted to convict McDonald or that I wanted to do justice, to put on a strong case. My mantra was much more basic than that. My mantra was simply this. I did not want to embarrass myself. That's what, if I could get through it and do that, I would be happy. So we began in the summer of 1979, starting around mid-July, finishing up just before Labor Day. I know what it is like to be frightened of doing something new and different on a public stage. It was public then, not like it would be now because we didn't have court television or cable news or anything like that. I remember, though, the uh, morning I was going to cross-examine Jeffrey McDonald, and uh, the network trucks were there, ABC, CBS, and NBC, parked out front of the federal building. And I remember before court began, I walked upstairs one flight to the men's room and threw up. Just threw the heck. I was a lot better after that to get on with my life in the process of cross-examining McDonald. It went okay, not great. Looks a lot better in print than it was in reality, but I got through it. You know, we won that case. Most people thought we would lose most of my side thought we would lose the only people who did not think we would lose were the jury members 
and they didn't decide that we were going to win until a few days before the case was over, I think. Sometimes if you try hard, if you work hard, if you do your best, you will get lucky. And that's what happened. We got lucky and we tried hard and we did our best. A number of years ago at Wake Forest University, there was a graduation speaker who was the executive editor of the New York Times. She was the first woman executive editor. The week before she was to speak, she was abruptly fired from her position. She loved the New York Times. You know, in today's world, most young people that you will see and meet, and you may be one of them, have tattoos over your different parts of your body. She had a tattoo herself, an older lady, 10 or 12 years ago, had the New York Times logo tattooed on her left shoulder. That's how much she loved the New York Times. She had the job of her dreams and she was fired. Nobody at Wake Forest knew whether she would show up or not. She did. There was a lot of media there because this is the first time she was going to speak since her firing. She gets up on the podium out in the quad at Wake Forest and she starts to make her speech. She throws her speech away and she starts and says, you know, nobody knew whether I would show up today because I was fired from my dream job just last week and I'm, I don't have a job as I speak to you today. I'm not speaking to you as the editor of the New York Times. I'm speaking to you as who I am. And then she looked at everybody who's dressed so nicely, the young men and women in their caps and gowns, and said, you know, you all look wonderful. You all look beautiful and happy. But you and I know that some of you, as you're sitting there right now, aren't all that happy. You're worried about your grades, the scholarship you've not gotten for graduate school, or maybe you haven't even gotten an admission of acceptance into graduate school, or maybe... A loved one, a partner, a boyfriend, a girlfriend has just broken up with you, getting ready to leave town after graduation. And you don't know what you're going to do. She said, I'm here to tell you. You better get used to it. You're going to get knocked down several times in your lifetime on this planet. Probably three or four major times. And the key point will be not so much whether you get knocked down, but whether or not you get back up and how you do that. That's what's going to be important. Do you get back up? So I want to say to all of the people who, you know, are going to college for the first time, all the people who are going to class and not doing well, you have to get back up. You have to go back to school. You have to not drop out. You have to not quit. I love the story that Ann told last week when she was an excellent high school student and she failed her first test at Duke University as a freshman. I remember that 
my first year at Wake Forest had an English class. The professor who taught me freshman English had lived across the driveway from me in the town of Wake Forest from my time from four years old until about 12. I knew him well. He's also a major reason I got into Wake Forest since he also became the Dean of Admissions. But, you know, I remember the first day I got back a paper that I thought was well-written, and all I remember was it was a lot of red lines, a lot of red ink, and it was a low grade, and I was devastated. What am I going to do? I had passed, but not with any credit to myself. All I know is I got frightened, got scared, and decided I would work hard. And I did the rest of the semester. And by the time the semester had ended, I was okay. I don't know whether he threw that paper grade out or not. He may have thrown them all out for the first student. I, I don't know. But I will tell you that that's what I think had to happen in my case. So those things are going to happen to you. You're not going to get a job. You're not going to get a promotion. Something not's going to get something's not going to go right. Your retirement will not be as much fun as you thought it would be. And you will get older. And you will get the view that it's too late to try new things. That it's too late to start over. I want to say to you, as I have said to so many people over the years in my seminar programs, there is one thing, maybe only one thing, that I know how to do. And I want to tell you about that just now. There are lots of ways to start over. There are a million ways to start over. No one situation or one more, one way is no better for you than me and me than you, and it may not work. What works for me may not work for you. But I'm here to tell you what I did in my own life works. And some of these things I'm going to talk about will work for you. First of all, you have got to be optimistic. You have got to think good thoughts about yourself. You can't walk around in the cloud of depression. You've got to try, and you've got to think that you can succeed. My favorite line from high school is, if it weren't for the optimist, the pessimist wouldn't know how happy he isn't. Optimism. You may think that as you get older, some people have done you wrong, have not been as loyal or as helpful to you as they perhaps should have been. Perhaps you've lost some friendships along the way. Perhaps you've been odd man out. I think to start over, you have to have no memory. No memory 
President Clinton was asked one time what made him a successful president. He said he had no memory. You can't have a memory be president of the United States. He said you can't remember who was not nice to you last week because this next week you may need them for a vote in Congress or something like that. You can't hold grudges. You can't do that. I know you want to, or at least I wanted to. I want to knock some of them upside the head, but I couldn't do that. I learned not to burn bridges. I didn't burn bridges. I have never been a bridge burner. And I don't think it works. I think I had to keep on trying. It's sort of like throwing spaghetti against the wall. You want to see if one of the noodles sticks. I know that's a bad way to go. But sometimes you can't do a rifle shot. You just got to try all sorts of things and see what works. Remember, if plan B doesn't work, there's still, after plan B, 24 more letters in the alphabet. And so you can, you can do that. Most everyone's career, I think, has starts and stops, ups and downs, successes and failures. Most all of them do. I was not, however, prepared for the biggest challenge of starting over in the sense that I did not see it coming quite as much as I should have when 30 years ago I lost the right to practice law and got into difficulty and all that followed from that. At the same time, the principle of being optimistic, the principle of not holding grudges, not burning bridges, of persevering, of keeping on, walking through it, eventually paid off. That's what worked for me. It took a little humility. No, it took a lot of humility. I had a lot to be humble about uh, in order for this to work. I remember when you think that you're afraid right now to go to class or go to school or start a new job or walk into a new classroom, think for just a second what it would be like to walk into a room and look around and see if there's anybody there whom you know who might cause you harm, wish you ill, or make you feel bad. I really didn't see anybody like that ever in my time, but I thought I did, or I thought I would. And I worried about that so much when I would go into restaurants, go to church, I would immediately look around. Even today, if I go to make a speech to a meeting where there are going to be lots of lawyers and there's a registration list, I always walk over to the registration desk and look at all the names of the people who are going to be there and see if I recognize any of them. Not because I'm afraid to, but I want to walk up and see them. I learned the wisdom and the value of meeting people and talking to people 
straight head on if it's been something that's been difficult for you in your past. And nine times out of ten, they are gracious and nice to you. I learned to have laughter in my life. I've always had laughter in my life. I have learned to try. Everybody you know can do this. Everybody can start over. Everybody who's listening to this podcast has a story to tell. A story of success, of disappointments, ups and downs, sideways, but interesting stories. Everybody has one. And yours is just as interesting as anybody else's, including mine. I have some friends who have used software to put together their own story of their lives. What a wonderful thing to do. What a great thing to have for people. It makes no real difference whether this is a best-selling book or not. There are lots of famous people who've written books that are not bestsellers. What is important is whether you have put together your own thoughts. One of the ways to start over and try something new and different, one way to be optimistic right now, despite your age, you can do something that nobody thinks you can do or nobody thinks you will do, and I will tell you what it is. Do people think that you would write a book? Do they think that you would keep a journal? Do they think that you would send them letters of how you feel about them? Do they think that you would get a, an account with Zoom that you don't have to pay for. You can do 45 minutes at a time. You don't have to pay for it or 40 minutes at a time. And do an interview with yourself. Talk to them. What a great thing to give somebody for Christmas. Or have a conversation with them and hit the record button. And keep it that way. What a great gift to give to somebody as a gift of yourself. People don't think that you would do that. I will tell you, if you will do something like this, it will make you smile. It will make you relax. You will enjoy yourself just a little bit more. And you will be proud of yourself for trying something like this. You can think of a thousand excuses and reasons why you do not have the time to do this. You've got to go do the carpool. You've got to fix dinner. You've got to do any number of different things but you can always take 20 minutes somewhere during a week or 25 minutes and sit down with your computer, click on Zoom and record and save it. You can save it to your documents in your computer file. And you know what you can do with then? I will tell you. You can set, go to the website called wetransfer.com, wetransfer.com. And go down, and you don't have to pay for it if you do it randomly. And you can send, attach the link or those Zoom calls and send it to your friends immediately. 
without any trouble at all. You can do it. You don't have to worry about whether you're too large for an email. You can just send it through. And there are other websites, I'm sure, but wetransfer.com is one of them. And I would just say to you, that is something you should try and do. You know, this is the 23rd podcast that I have done since April the 11th. I can't recall anything that has been more fun, more energizing, more entertaining for me than to do this podcast. I have talked to so many interesting people, and it's made me think and reimagine things all over again. Just this past week, I had the opportunity to go with a friend of mine, Patrice Nealon, who is a faculty member at NC State University here in Raleigh. And I've become a client for two of her marketing classes, one digital marketing, the other just marketing. And I've got teams of young people who are going to do nothing this semester except try to help me figure out how to reach, reach a wider audience and improve my podcast across everywhere. I want to try. I don't know how to do some of this stuff. I don't know how to do technology very well at all, but I'm trying to figure it out. There is no time like the present. There is no reason why you can't start over. There's just not. I am hopeful, and I think you should be hopeful too. A number of years ago, there was a book published on the 100th anniversary of the birth of Nelson Mandela. He was in prison in South Africa for over 26 years. He did not get to attend the funerals of at least one of his children. He wrote letters home. He didn't think they got him. He was certain he didn't get some of the letters from them. He wasn't sure his children would remember him. He wrote his wife one day, who was Winnie Mandela, his first wife, in which he said in part, when all else seems lost, hope is the greatest weapon that there is hope when all else seems lost. That's the one ingredient of starting over. That's the one ingredient of trying new things again. I want to close with a story. I can't remember it all. I'll do the best that I can. From an article that was written in the Washington Post two or three years ago, summarizing a recent book uh, by Madeleine Albright, the former Secretary of State. Madeleine Albright was an immigrant from Europe, came here on Ellis Island when she was 11 years old. Her father was a professor who taught uh, in the Midwest. Unless you think that she's a democratic liberal, her father was one of the mentors and professors for Condoleezza Rice, who was Secretary of State under uh, President Bush. Anyway, she starts off 
by saying in Washington, D.C., we are not a state, so we have no senatorial, much congressional representation in Congress. But we do have lots of graveyards. And if you go to some of the graveyards, it's hard not to get teary-eyed and melancholy as you walk and look at the gravestones that are old and chipped and broken. And you look at the names of the ages, birth, and death of so many of the people there. And so many of the people who are buried there in some of these graveyards were young children who did not get the chance to grow up and have a life of their own. They did not have the chance to grow old. And she goes on and sort of whips us all and saying not to feel sorry for ourselves, not to put ourselves down. There are challenges out there for sure. But don't be timid. Don't be shy. We have a finite number of days, months, and years. And we should not waste them. What we should do, what we should do is put on our boats, grab a cane if we must, and march. Put on our boots, grab a cane if we must, and march. That's how she spent her life. And the question is, how are we going to spend hours? I hope you have enjoyed this. I've enjoyed talking about this. I know it seemed perhaps to ramble at times, but these are thoughts that I think are important. I want to do one hopefully next week on relationships, the building of relationships. That's something that you will need as you go to school and new jobs, new positions, and you should go through life as a building of relationships. Thank you very much. If you have enjoyed this podcast, I hope you will come back for the next one next Monday after this. And if you're so inclined to click the follow button and follow me as we go forward. Thank you very much.